We're so glad that you are checking out this sermon from New Beginnings. Our vision as a church is to become an authentic biblical community that transforms our city and impacts the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We do this through gathering in worship, growing through community, giving to the kingdom, and going on mission. We know that one of the greatest blessings of the church is getting to pursue this vision that God has given us together. My hope is that we would get the opportunity to connect with you in person and get you plugged into the life of our church. Also, if you have been blessed by the ministries of New Beginnings, we ask that you would consider supporting us financially. You can do so by clicking on the giving tab of our website, nvbctx.org. I pray that you are both encouraged and challenged by the scripture today. I'm excited to be here this morning as we continue in this series and I find it interesting, not every time, but every now and then, um, over the years, when I'm preparing to speak or teach on a certain subject or a specific topic or something like that, every now and then, like God just shows up during the week and he just like drops a bomb on you. I don't know if you've ever had that happen where you've been wrestling with something, praying about something, asking God to show up, and then all of a sudden, he does, and it just blindsides you. It catches you off guard, and it just leaves you standing in awe of who he is and how he works and all the things that he's done. So let me share with you real quick. This past week, my wife, we're fairly new to the area, and my wife, Lauren, she's got some, some health issues, and so she's been looking for a specific doctor, and she had to go over to Tyler, and she met with this brand new doctor. It's her first time to go in there, and so she walks in, and the doctor sits her down and talks to her and walks her through everything. And, and we're sitting there wondering, well, I wonder how much is this is going to be? This a brand new patient, new setup. All, you're going to have to do all these tests. And so i got to be honest, church. I was sitting there going, man, this is going to cost me some coin. This is going to cost me a pretty penny because we're, we're, we're transitioning. Her insurance has changed. Uh, and so we're just in the middle of that weird transition. And so I went, hey, you need to go. Let's do this. So she goes to the doctor, and she walks in, and he takes time with her. He talks to her about her history and some of the things that have been going on. And then he, 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 he gives her this expensive medicine that she needs, and, and we thought that was going to cost us a lot. And he says, hey, I want to give you a couple months free. And then at the end of the time, he, he writes on her paperwork when she gets ready to go to the front. He says, no charge, free. And to top it all off, I'm sitting there going, I, this can't get any better. And she goes, check this out. Not only did he give me free medicine, a free visit, but he also took the time to pray with me. And he said, I want to pray for you. I want to pray for your health. I want to pray that God will just continue to heal your body and restore you. And I'm telling you, she walked out of there with tears in her eyes. I walked away just going, man, how great is our God that he meets us in our times of needs. And he just goes above and beyond. And so as I'm wrestling with this subject that we're talking about today, gospel generosity and the things that motivates, uh, that motivates us to give and to be generous, he, he showed me right there. He's like, let me show you some generosity. Let me show you what I can do when I move upon the hearts of our people. And so today we're going to be looking at this, how the gospel motivates us to give, but not just to give, but to give joyfully, willingly, and generously. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. As you're making your way over there, I want to remind you, Pastor Todd kicked off this series last week in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and he did an incredible job of showing us 
uh, about the core of the gospel, that this is who Christ is, this is what Christ has done, and because of what he has done, that should motivate and compel us to live generous lives as well, because he who was rich became poor. Y'all remember that verse? He who was rich became poor in order that we might become rich in him. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And so he did an incredible job of setting us up for this series. And we're going to continue this week as Paul addresses the church at Corinth in chapter 9, starting in verse 1. Here's what it says. It says, Now it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints. For I know your readiness of which I boast about of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready... We would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead of you to you and arrange in advance for the gift that you have promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift and not as an exaction. Even though Paul in the beginning, did you see that in verse one? He says, now it is superfluous for me to go on writing. In other words, like there's no need for me to say these words. There's no need for me to write this because I've already told you in chapter 8 what, how, how generous you are and how the, the Macedonians have responded and, and they've been generous as well. And so Paul starts off in chapter 9 saying, man, it's superfluous. It's kind of meaningless or pointless for me to say this thing, but I'm going to say it anyways. And so he goes on writing. And so this is what they call a rhetorical device. It's called a paralepsis, if I'm saying that correctly. And here's what that means. Saying that you're not going to mention a subject and then proceeding to do so has the effect of emphasizing it uh, in, in, an under, in an understanding way, in an understated way that, that's less offensive than if you were just to come out and say what you're going to say. I mean, we do this all the time, don't we? Let me give you an example. Like, I'll look at my boys from time to time and say, hey, boys, I know you know, but... You need to go and do this, right? Before we go in there, hey, I know you know how to behave before we go in the store or before we go in here to these people's house, but let me remind you of why. So even though they know, I'm going to remind them. Or what about this one? Maybe a spouse looks at you and says, honey, I know you know, but I just want to remind you. And that never happens to any of you guys, does it? Your spouse never looks at you and says, hey, honey, I know you know this. But I just want to remind you, pick up your socks, right? <laughs> Honey, I know you know, but I just want to remind you, can you please take out the trash before you go to work? That never happens in your house, does it? Doesn't ever happen in mine because I'm, I'm just with it. I, got it. I know exactly what I'm doing. I know what she's thinking before she says it, and I just get it done. And you're like, you're a lying dog up there. <laughs> so this is what Paul's doing. This is exactly what he's doing right here to the church at Corinth, the Corinthians. This is exactly what he's saying. Paul is reminding the Corinthians of how it was their own enthusiasm toward the gospel that motivated and incited the Macedonians to give in the first place. You remember that in chapter 8? 
where Paul was talking to them about this incredible church in Macedonia that they were giving out of their poverty, giving out of their affliction, and that they begged and pleaded to be able to just take part in giving an offering towards the work of the gospel that was occurring all over that region. This is what happens. This is what Paul is reminding them of. He's letting them know, listen, they gave because they had seen and experienced the generosity of Jesus. And Paul's reminding them, hey, you're the ones who started this whole thing, Corinth. It was your generosity that motivated and ignited the giving in the Macedonians. Now, don't miss this. So Paul, in this moment, he's, he's prodding in the Corinthians. He's trying to rekindle their initial enthusiasm for generosity. Why would Paul need to do this? It's because Paul was no fool. He understood human behavior. He understood how sometimes, as time goes by, people tend to forget or people get busy. He knew that the Corinthians were just like you and me that they had been ready to give towards this work of the gospel a year earlier, that they started this project, they were excited, they were on fire for the things that God was doing in their region and in their city. But over time, what happens? Same thing that happens to all of us, right? We come home from church camp and we're on fire, we're excited. We go to a weekend conference or a revival and we're on fire, we're excited. We're ready to charge the gates of hell, we're ready to do all these amazing things. And then Monday comes. And you get off the bus or you get out of church and you go to work and you get busy with life and you start doing your things and you're all about, you're just in survival mode. And so time goes by and time marches on and you start to just, the fire starts to die down, doesn't it? And this is what had happened in Corinth with these Corinthians, these, these, got, these Christians, these disciples of Jesus, is that time had gone by, they had gotten busy, they had gotten distracted, and the mission or the project had maybe lost some of its newness to them. You see, the original excitement had maybe died down just a little bit. It happens, doesn't it? It happens to all of us. And you see, the, you see it's because the start and the finish of a marathon. Those are the exciting moments in the race, aren't they? If you've ever been to a marathon, when my wife's ran a few half marathons, I can remember being at the starting line and people are screaming, they're cheering, they're holding up signs, they're fired up. And the same thing at the finish line, there's music playing, the band is there, they're screaming, there's yelling, there's all this energy and all this excitement. But nobody sees the miles in between. Nobody sees when they hit the wall and they're just doing good to keep putting one foot in front of the other. You see, the, the, the excitement is there in the start of, a, of an event or a project. The excitement's there in the finish. But it's all the miles in between where we need someone, we need our friends, we need our family, we need our teammates, we need people like Paul in our life to say, don't give up. Keep going, keep running, keep putting one foot in front of the other. It's going to be worth it if you'll just keep going. Don't forget where you started and don't forget where you're going. And in between, I want you to keep your eyes on the prize. And I want you to keep pursuing the things of the gospel. And I want you to keep running with the same enthusiasm and the same way that you started running this race in the beginning. And this is what Paul is saying to the church at Corinth. You see, it takes motivation It takes determination, a stubborn determination to keep going. And so here in 2 Corinthians 9, Paul is doing that thing. He is cheering them on. You see, he's reminding them. And then in verse 3, he does exactly what I would do. 
He sends in reinforcements. Check out verse 3. It says this. In verse 3, he says, But I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, and so that you may be ready as I said you would be. Let me give you an example. It's like at my house. My wife could be out of town or traveling, or she could be maybe just across town. And she might give us some specific directions, or she might tell my boys or ask them to do something, or she might have just expected them to maybe clean their rooms. And so while she's away, she might, at a, at a great distance, maybe out of town, or again, just busy running errands around town, she might call me and say, hey, I just want to make sure that y'all are okay. Just want to make sure that the boys are doing what I asked them to do. Just want to make sure they're getting it done. And I'm like, oh, yeah, babe, it's cool. They're good. We got this. No problem. And then I hang up the phone. And then I find out that one of them is kind of dragging their feet in there. They're not cleaning their room. They're not doing what they said they would do. They're playing. And so what do I do in that moment? I send in the brother. I send in big brother. And I say, hey, go in there. Tell your brother that I, he better be cleaning up that room. He better be getting it done because mama's coming home. And he better get it done and do what he said he was going to do. And I'm going to come in there in about 10 minutes and check up on this and make sure that it's getting done. Are we clear? Yes, sir. And so the brother walks in and he says, hey, daddy said he's coming. He's going to come in here. And worse than that, mama's coming home. So you better get this room clean. And he's coming to check on it in about 10 minutes. And it's not going to be good if it's not clean. This is what Paul's doing. He's sending in the brothers into Corinth saying, listen, you said you were going to give Remember, you said you were going to give, and you're the ones that started this whole thing anyway. And so I, I just want you to know that I'm coming soon, and I'm bringing some, but I'm sending the brothers ahead of me to make sure that what you said you're doing is actually getting done, and that when I show up, it's going to be good, and we're not going to have any issues, and no one's going to be embarrassed, and no one's going to be humiliated. And that's what Paul's doing in these verses. You see, he didn't want to show up and... and, and and have his words uh, come back to bite him. He didn't want to show up and go, man, this is not at all what you said you were doing. This is not what I was bragging on you about. And here we are in this situation, and now this, this doesn't really look good for any of us. So Paul sends the brothers ahead to make sure that this is getting done after he's been bragging on them. You see, mama's not coming with Paul, but the Macedonians might be, he said. He said, the Macedonians may be coming with me. And they started giving because of your generosity in the first place. You were the one that was leading the way for them and setting the example for them. And so they caught that fire and they started giving and they're coming with me. And I've already been bragging on you to them and letting them know how amazing you guys are and how generous you guys are. And so I just want to make sure that we are prepared when we show up that we don't all look like a bunch of fools. And so that's what Paul is doing in this text is he's he's reminding them he's trying to keep the Corinthian the Christians in Corinth and himself from being embarrassed and humiliated but he also wants them to be prepared in advance and not feel pressured in the last minute the last seconds to give because honestly no one likes to be pressured to give. I know any time that a pastor, whether it's Pastor Todd or myself or any of the pastors that you've ever uh, been under in your lifetime, that any time a pastor starts talking about generosity, you think, oh Lord, here we go again. Pastor trying to get his long arm in my short pocket. 
And I want to remind you that's not the case at all. That's not what Paul was saying here. Because last week we heard Pastor Todd say up here and say, listen, generosity is a discipline in the Christian life that we should be pursuing after. That this is something we should desire to grow in. That it's the the mark of a mature believer is that the gospel has changed us, it's transformed us. And so the things that we were chasing after no longer matter, but yet we're chasing after the things of God. And these are what are top priority on our list. And so we're going to give our time, our talents, our resources, everything that we have towards the mission of the gospel. And if we're giving, it should show us that we are growing that we are maturing in our walk and in our discipleship as we follow after Jesus. No one likes to feel pressure to give. No one likes to, to feel like they have to give out of obligation. Because after all, a forced gift isn't really a gift, is it? Let me say that again. A forced gift isn't really a gift, is it? And Paul goes on in verse 6, and I love the way he writes this. He says, the point now is this. If you're following along in your Bibles, in verse 6, he says, The point is this, For whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Paul uses this seed to teach the Corinthians and us a profound spiritual truth. In fact, it's a universal law. It's called the law of the harvest. In other words, here's what Paul's saying. You can only harvest what you plant. How many of you like to plant things out there? How many of you have a green thumb? How many of you like to plant? Some of you are like, "Uh, don't look at me right now. Everything I plant dies, right? But some of you out there, some of you are gardeners. Some of you have incredible looking yards and I envy you because I'm striving for that. I'm trying. And especially now that I live in East Texas where things actually grow, it's exciting to be here. I'm like, man, let's see what happens here. But here's what happens sometimes. He's saying, here's what Paul wants us to know here is that you or I, we can't go out and plant a sunflower seed and then expect an apple tree to grow. So many times I I see people, they, they, they plant certain things like evil and wickedness and greed, but yet they expect righteousness and they expect the gospel. They expect all these other great things, good things, but yet they've never sown anything good. They've sown wickedness and deceit they've sown all of these things but yet they expect to reap something different than what they've planted and the law of the harvest doesn't work that way you reap what you sow and whatever you sow is going to come back probably tenfold is what we see a lot of times you see a sunflower seed doesn't just produce one little flower with one seed on it does it what does it produce it produces a flower but what hundreds and hundreds of seeds in the middle of it You see, Paul wants us to know that you will reap what you sow. In fact, in Galatians 6, Paul says it this way. He says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. Verse 8 says, for the one who sows to his own flesh from the flesh will reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So Paul's like, man, listen, right here in Corinthians, he's like, listen, if you're going to sow, man, sow bountifully, sow generously, sow joyfully. If you're going to sow, man, then let's sow the right things in right proportion. Let's give to the things that are worth us giving to. 
Because make no mistake, Paul wants this church at Corinth and us to know that there will come a harvest. So if you're going to sow, sow the right things. And sow not begrudgingly, but sow generously so that there will be a generous harvest for all to enjoy. And that's what he's wanting us to see in this text. Verse 7, he goes on to say this. He says, each one of you must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. You see, Paul doesn't want the Corinthians or us to give out of guilt. He doesn't want us to give reluctantly or uh, under compulsion. He doesn't want us to feel pressured to give. That's why he sent the brothers ahead and he said, hey, if you've planned to give, now let's just follow through with that plan. You started off on the right track, but you've kind of forgotten. But now I'm sending the brothers ahead so that they can remind you of why we started this thing in the first place. And so that when we show up, you don't feel pressured to give like, like, like I'm trying to sell you on something. I want you just to give out of the overflow of your heart of what Christ has already done for you. You should be willing, gladly, generously, joyfully wanting to participate in the giving of the advancement of the gospel. And Paul doesn't want us to give out of guilt or out of pressure. He wants us to give out of the grace that we've been given. There's a big difference there. You see, when you and I, when we truly experience the grace of God, it will transform us from the inside out. It will transform our hearts. In fact, the gospel will change your self-centered heart to a generous, joy-filled heart. Let me show you, if you'll flip over to Luke chapter 18, I want to share a story with you real quick. Luke chapter 18 is a powerful story where we see this happen in an individual's life. We're going to compare two stories, Luke 18 and Luke 19. So I want to give you a second to get there. And so that you can follow along as I'm reading and kind of paraphrasing some of these stories. We're going to look at these two different men and their two different stories. And we're going to see how the gospel radically transforms one. And it then changes everything about him and his generosity. And how one kind of walks away in the same In Luke 18, it's a story that many of you have probably heard before. It's called The Rich Young Ruler. Luke 18, this guy shows up and he starts asking Jesus. He says, hey, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? In other words, what must I do to inherit an eternal harvest, if you will, since we're talking about sowing and reaping? What must I do to get this eternal harvest, this eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he looks at Jesus with a little smile on his face, I'm sure. And he says, all these I have kept from my youth. In other words, I'm a committed, devout Jew. I've been following the law since I can remember, and I'm good at it. And he goes on to say, when Jesus heard this, he said to him, that's great. But one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. 
For it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said this. They said, man, then who can be saved? Like this guy has kept the law from birth. He's done all the right things. He's helped all the little old ladies across the street. He's kept the Torah through and through. And you're telling me that this guy can't get in? He's, they, they're asking Jesus this question. What hope is there for any of us common people? What hope is there for us? This guy is wealthy. He's successful. He's popular. He's a law follower. And Jesus says, man, it's going to be very difficult for him to enter in because something else has his heart and not me. And Jesus looks at him and he says, but take heart. Listen, he says this in, in uh, verse 20, 27. He says, but he said to them, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Flip over one chapter, chapter 19. Story about a wee little man named Zacchaeus. Chapter 19, verse, verse 1, says that Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. He was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. And so he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. Did you see that? He received him joyfully. Verse 8, and, and Zacchaeus stood up and he said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house. Two guys, both successful, both wealthy, both saw and encountered Jesus. But man, two drastically different outcomes. One walked away the same way that he came in, self-centered and unchanged by Jesus. And one ran away, radically changed, full of joy, willingly and generously wanting to participate in the work of the gospel. Isn't that amazing? Two guys, both wealthy, both successful, both saw and encountered Jesus. One walked away sad and selfish and still consumed by all the things that he was striving after. And another saw Jesus and he was radically changed from the inside out. His heart of stone became a heart of flesh. He was greedy and selfish, and now all of a sudden, he became generous and joyful, and he said, Jesus, if I've defrauded anyone, if I've stolen from anyone, whatever I have, I'm going to give it back. I'm going to give my wealth to the poor. I'm going to give it back to anyone that I've stolen or defrauded from fourfold. I'm going to pay them back four times what I took for them, from them. Two radically different outcomes in this story. Both of these stories, listen, church, both of these stories, I want you to hear this. Jesus did not want their wealth or their money. He didn't care about that. Everything is His in the first place. 
but he looked at these guys. He did not want their wealth, but he wanted their hearts. He wanted their hearts. Jesus simply wants our hearts. You see, so many times, he doesn't get any of our time or our money because honestly, he doesn't have our hearts. You see, our generosity is a reflection of where our hearts truly are. We see it in these stories. This one man's heart was slave to the things of this world, and it was, it was being held hostage by all of these material possessions. He was too busy building his own kingdom, and he didn't care about the kingdom of God. He just wanted to show up and ask Jesus, hey, what can I get out of you today? I want everyone to look at me and be impressed. I, I'm, I'm wealthy, I'm successful, I've got all these things going for me. And so he looks at the, Jesus and says, good teacher, what do I need to do? What else is there left for me to do? I mean, I've checked off every box. What else should I do to get eternal life? And Jesus gives him one thing that he's not willing to do. And the only reason Jesus gave him that one thing is because he knew that this man's heart was hard and selfish and was holding on to the things of this world that he was never going to be able to keep in the first place. And he wasn't willing to do it. I can't tell you how many times, church, I've uh, over 15 plus years of ministry that I've seen both of these stories lived out. I've watched people walk into church week in and week out and they come in and they check off the box for their weekly good thing that they have done. They show up and they network and they, they enjoy some coffee and some meals with some friends and then they walk away and they're still unchanged. They show up and they participate in just a, a worship service, but they never meet with the king himself. And they walk away still selfish and full of themselves, unwilling to change, unwilling to give their hearts to the king. And then I see others come in and, and they walk in hard, but all of a sudden the gospel pierces through their heart and it breaks through that heart of stone and it radically changes and transforms everything about them. And all of a sudden the things that used to matter to them, the things that they used to give everything to, all of their striving, all of their goals, all of their ambition, all of their efforts that they had been pursuing in this world slowly start to shift and change and they look radically different a little way down the road. And you look at him, you go, man, what happened in that moment? What happened in that person's life? I can tell you, they met Jesus. And when Jesus invades your heart and invades your life, it changes everything. I was reading a story about the, the founder and CEO of Domino's Pizza. And he said, early on in my early days, the number one goal in my life was to have more than everyone else. And I was dead set on achieving those things. I was going to be larger and wealthier and more successful than anyone else. And then something changed, something happened. He met Jesus. And he said, all of a sudden, when I met Jesus, everything changed. Everything shifted in my life. The things that I used to care about weren't so important anymore. And so he said, I, I, when I was pursuing the things of this world, I did not like the way that I, that I lived. I was prideful, but I was empty and broken and hollow and always wanting something more, but nothing else would ever fill that void. And so I strived after those things only to get to those things and go, man, I'm still not happy. And he said, then I met Jesus. And when I met Jesus, it changed everything for me. I then stopped striving after having more than everyone else. I set a budget 
And I said, this is all I need to live by. And then I'm going to give everything else away to the work and the kingdom of God. And that's what he does. I mean, people that are radically saved by the gospel, that's the way that they live. You see, Jesus doesn't need or want our money or our wealth, but he does want our hearts. You see, our generosity is a reflection of where our hearts truly are. Luke 12, 34 says it this way, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I've read that a thousand times, and every time I read it, I have this tendency to want to read it and put it kind of flip the words and read it backwards. And here's what, let me read it to you this way. For where your heart is, there your treasure is also. Where your heart is, there your treasure is also. Let me ask you this morning, New Beginnings. What's captured your heart? What has your heart? You see, if the gospel has captured our hearts, then we must be willing to sow generously into the lives of others and into the work of the gospel and advancing the kingdom of God. If Jesus truly has our hearts, then we should be the type of people who are motivated to give, but not just to give just for giving's sake, but we should be motivated to give joyfully, willingly, and generously. I can't tell you how, how often every time I see someone enter into those baptism waters, week after week after week, whether it's one or 30 like we saw a few weeks ago, every time I see someone say, I am changed by Christ, I no longer live, but He lives in me. This life I live in the body, I now live by faith, faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. How can I not live my life from this day forward giving everything that I have back to Him because He's given me so much? You see, when you look at what debt you owed and that it's been erased and cleared and forgiven forever, you can't help but say, God, I'll give everything that I have. I'll give the rest of my life to you. I'll give all of my possessions, all of my belongings. Those things don't matter. Those things will rust and be destroyed. They can be stolen. But I'm going to invest in a, a heavenly, eternal treasure where no one can steal it from me. When your life is changed by Christ, it changes everything. When He has your heart, you don't have anything else to lose. You can give it all back to Him. And every time I see someone enter into those waters, I'm saying, man, that's what it's about. Life transformation, life change. How could we not get fired up and get excited about that? And some of you come in here and you cheered louder yesterday on a Saturday football game than you do on a baptism when somebody's been moved from death to life. And it blows my mind that we can sit here so quietly and just kind of give them a little golf clap and go, oh, that's great, oh, that's great. It, it cannot become common to us. We have to be a generous church that every time we see that, we say, man, I'm going all in. If that is what it's about, then I'm going all in and I'm going to give joyfully and generously and willingly because that is what I want to see happen week in and week out in my workplace, in my neighborhood, with my friends, with my family. I want to invest in something that really matters, don't you? I don't know about you, but man, when I see life change and life transformation like that, I want to go all in. And I want to say, God, it's all yours anyways. I can't lose. And so I want to ask you this morning one more question. Where's your heart at? Because your heart matters. And Jesus doesn't want your money, but he wants your heart. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the word that we have read in 2 Corinthians chapter 9.
God, thank you for the reminder that Paul gives us in this text to sow generously, to give to the things that matter. God, thank you for the stories that we see in Luke 18 and 19 about two men whose hearts and lives were changed and transformed. God, thank you for the story that we see in the life of Zacchaeus where he he came into that place full of selfishness, full of greed, but when he truly encountered you, his life was forever radically changed and it changed the way that he invested and gave his money that he now gave joyfully, willingly, and generously. And so God, I'm praying for my friends in this place today. I know that there's some that may have walked in this place just because it's what they do on Sunday morning. That they're just coming and showing up, ready to just check off a box for the week and saying, you know what, I I did my good deed. I showed up, I went to church. But God, I'm praying today that you would meet them in that place and that your love for them would radically pierce their hearts and change them and transform them that they would not walk away from here unchanged, but they would walk away from here forever changed because of who you are and what you've done for them. God, I'm praying that you would remove their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh, that they would would start to pursue the things that you care about. God, that their heart would break for the things that break yours. God, I'm asking you to, to save them now. Father, I'm praying for my, for my other friends in this place that man, they gave their heart to you a long time ago, but life happens and things happen and we get busy and we, we kind of get our priorities out of balance and we forget what it's really about. God, I'm praying that today would be a day that you get our heart's attention and our heart's affection again that you would grab a hold of our hearts and you would help us to see that you don't need our money, but you want our hearts. And God, I'm asking you to break our hearts once again and that we would be filled with your love, filled with your joy, and that we would willingly, gladly, joyfully give to the things that matter. And that is the advancement of the gospel and making your name great. And so we're asking you to move in this place and have your way today. It's in Christ's name we pray. Our prayer partners are up at the front. If you need prayer, they would love the opportunity to pray with you.